You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 99 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. We've got a great episode for you today. Uh, If you are a fan of baseball in the city of Houston, if you're an Astros fan, uh, you're going to love our conversation with Larry Durker. He joins us for about an hour conversation. It's just absolutely great. Uh, We've also got Corey Law from the uh, the Harlem Globetrotters, which are going to be making their way through uh, Houston here at the uh, the end of the month. But uh, July 8th and 9th. Yeah, July 8th and 9th, so the beginning of the month. Uh, but uh, Kevin, Jeremy, it's uh, it's great to have you both in studio this week. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's uh, good to be back. And obviously, that conversation we just had with uh, with Larry Durker was engrossing. I can't wait till the listeners get to hear it. Certainly a lot of uh, baseball history I wasn't aware of. But uh, yeah, good to be back in the studio with you guys. And always a pleasure to be talking sports with you. I'm just happy to be alive right now. You can hear my voice is a couple octaves lower. That's due to a, a few week a few weeks bout with the flu. It's uh, it almost took me out, but I am here broadcasting to you guys. I could not be happier. I, I, I noticed you're looking a little slimmer. A, a little bit. Was, was yeah. that was that part of like a, a new diet trend or? It, it, it's a it, it's a part of uh, something called gastritis. Apparently, that's what the doctor tells me. So um, it's been really hard to eat, but um, Ooh, I'm that sounds I'm, terrible. I'm back on the fast food diet, trying to pack on all the pounds <laughs> that I lost. Um, Sorry, are you, are you doing Whataburger or Chick Fil A? Oh, I am actually doing a little bit of McDonald's, a little bit of Smashburger. I'm very sentimental about all of the pounds I carry around my waist, <laughs> so I want to get them back as soon as possible. So I, don't, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Derek Carr, who uh, just signed a huge contract extension. With he is the, now uh, Forbes' most, uh, most wealthy man in the world. Not quite, but it's close. But he signed, <laughs> uh, he's the quarterback, of course, for the Raiders, who uh, the Texans could have had, but instead they signed uh, Xavier Sulafilu. Uh, and, you know, it would have been nice for them to have a quarterback, but he just signed a contract where he's going to be making about $25 million a season, making him the highest paid football player uh, on a per season contract. But uh, it was interesting. One of the things that he was asked by a member of the media when he was doing his press conference, so it's like, he was like, is, is this going to change you? What's the first big purchase that you're going to make? And his response was, uh, I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. and just uh, get some nuggets. <laughs> was, that, was that from the heart, or do you think that maybe he had some deal worked out with Chick-fil-A? Uh, it was totally from the heart. I, oh, think, wow. I, th- I think he was like, that's the best kind well, of pub. Well, because he, he went on to say that you know his trainer has been making him eat clean for like the last <laughs> several weeks, and now... Is Chick-fil-A not clean? I was about to say, is it not That's health clean? food, right? I, it's, it's not health food. It's the healthier of fast food. Oh, I, that's not the way I think of it. I think of it as health food. I, I congratulate myself every time I eat Chick Fil A. No, I, I think you're. You, I mean, it just sucks that we can't have it on Sundays. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I, I've been blaming genetics every time I get a blood oh, test. My cholesterol's Sunday. off the chart. Ah, oh. I know, right? And that's so lame. I was just. Thinking I will about say that. Uh, probably seven out of ten Sundays uh, at about I don't know eight fifteen. I will find myself at the. There's a Chick Fil A you can throw a rock from my apartment and hit, and I will be like in the drive through and, and just like realize there's no cars around, and no lights on, and it's, it's really depressing, especially like during football season when you get in your car mm. and you head to Chick Fil A thinking, all right, I'm going to get some like you know nuggets, some chicken strips before the Texans game, and then sure. lo and behold, you end up having to go to I don't know Wingstop or something. Wingstop garbage like that, right? I I actually sit at the drive through and I cry a little bit and then I just pull on through and act like I'm getting something from the window. So. We are not sponsored by Wingside, by the way. That's a trash <laughs> wing place. I'm a wing connoisseur. Uh, wings and More would be the place I'd go to. Uh, also, Wings and Things. In so, Wings and Things, Wings and More, Chick-fil-A. Just, if you want to be uh, a part of the Weekly Brew, just go ahead and uh, give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings isn't total trash. It's not great. 
Yeah, but it's not terrible. But okay, but if you're rating something based on it's not total trash, right. then yeah. I think that speaks to for itself. You know, that should be their tagline, we, though. Be like Buffalo Wild Wings. It's not total garbage. <laughs> so we're also branding experts. But uh, speaking <laughs> of branding, uh, we, we do have a sponsor, and that's Big Baller Brands, and of course. <laughs> Big baller brands and Lonzo Ball went number two overall in the, uh, the NBA draft this past week, heading to the Lakers. I'm not high on Lonzo. What do you think about that? I mean, it, 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 to me, it was there was there were some tweets that I wasn't really a fan of uh, earlier in the during the draft. There were people complaining that if you're a Rockets fan, you're not going to like watching the draft, and you have no reason to watch the draft. Are you talking about Robert Land? I am talking about Robert Land, the guy that hosts that horrible, horrible show, Houston yeah, Sports Talk. Yeah, but. Uh, Gosh, I enjoyed watching the NBA draft. Sure, absolutely. And there's plenty to watch there. Obviously, this is the time when we get to all be NBA fans and get to follow these larger narratives and storylines. We're really all just kind of, uh, I like, for instance, Jimmy Butler. That was mind blowing. I can't believe that happened. It's one of the, the most. Tomball product. Ones, yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the most one sided trades in league history, as far as I'm concerned. So there's, there's stuff going on that's not relevant to us specifically. Obviously, we didn't do anything of note, I wouldn't say. Um, but, but yeah, uh, the NBA draft is a fantastic time. We had uh, this time. Uh, Three Houston-born players take it in the draft, which is uh, the first time it's ever occurred, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it was four. Was it four? It was four. I know in the, in Damian, the... Jackson, and Fox. Who's the fourth? Wandu. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, four. So not three would have been a first time. Four, actually. Eclipsing yeah, that. so I think Houston players did a, a you know phenomenal in the draft. Of course, De'Aaron Fox going uh, number five overall to Sacramento. Uh, that's a that's I mean, a, and they I, also picked up Jackson as well. So I know they you, did. You got two Houston guys going to Sacramento. That, that's did you hear what cool. Devot said they were going for there? Vladi Devot's the GM out at the Kings. Well, the, the most dis, well, the second most dysfunctional franchise in sports is what I would say. The New York Knicks, I think, have eclipsed it at this point. But uh, with Genie Bus taking recontrol of the Lakers, there, I would say that Sacramento is just the worst place to land. And everything I said said De'Aaron was going there. He did go there, and then instead of taking Malik Monk at ten, they traded down for fifteen and twenty. I, I like Justin Jackson. I've met Justin Jackson. I've talked to his family before. I mean, he's, he's a fine kid. And what Vladi said they were doing was going for high-character guys. So De'Aaron, very high-character kid. They are focusing on that because of the problems they had with DeMarcus Cousins, I think. But, uh, but I do think that Justin Jackson is going to be, at best, a marginal NBA talent. I, I don't like the trade down there. I don't think it serves them well. There are people that are saying online they won the draft. Um, I think that's uh, bull hockey, in my opinion. I, I didn't like the move. I would have loved to see Monk and Fox back together again, reprising their, uh, their Kentucky front court from uh, our backcourt from uh, the, the last season. Yeah, it, it should be interesting. But there was one guy who was not drafted who I think uh, a lot of people thought would be drafted. He was probably graded as a, a fringe lottery and a first round type player. And that's uh, Jonathan Motley from Baylor, who left a little bit early, went undrafted, ended up signing a free agent deal, a two way deal with the, uh, the Dallas Mavericks. And mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with the two way deal, that means that you can uh, be on the G League uh, roster spot. I'm not but, calling it the G League. Right. But you're also <laughs> considered one of the, I guess, 16 or 17th player on the, uh, the NBA roster. So he's you're basically make... guaranteed to never play. Is well, what it means. <laughs> but it's, it's going to help him with development, keeps him under team control, which kind of maybe pulls him away from potentially going to Europe, but he's guaranteed to make at least 75000 If he gets on an NBA roster, then he makes 275000 So it's a good deal for him, and it's, I believe, a two-year contract. But injury concerns were one of the reasons why he slipped. Yeah, sure. And uh, that it's, a, it's disappointing for, for Baylor fans. I know that there have been a lot of players that we sort of hold high and dear in our hearts. He was definitely one of them from this past season. And to see him just, you know, kind of not paying out in the draft, that was it was disappointing, but not altogether unexpected. Like you said, injury concerns are an issue. But then I also think that um, some of these guys tend to get a little 
too full of themselves, like heading into the draft. And I, I feel like some some of our guys are no exception to that. Well, to I, be, I'd to hoped fair, he would stay for another year. To be fair, he was already a four year player. He he took a red shirt year, right. so it, it's not like he was a guy coming out of his freshman or sophomore year and went undrafted. He's a guy who would have come back for his fifth season, and, and that's a lot. You know, I. I I think he understands that he was developed as far as he could at Baylor and thought that it was his time to go. It was just an unfortunate circumstances with injuries toward the end of a season. Yeah. Uh, again, but I'm, I'm selfish and I, I think about all the Jonathan Motley talk during the college football or the, sorry, the college basketball season. And I, I, I wish he had come back for, you know, a fifth and final season with us just to, you know, kind of help us along. And I think that that's also an opportunity. It's also um, a risk. You know, if you want to allay concerns about injuries, I, you know, that's potentially an opportunity to do that. You know, if you can go through a whole season without any injuries, then, you know, you have a possibility of getting drafted. Yeah. And just for clarification, that background noise that you hear is actually our mascot, Bo, uh, who is in the uh, the studio with us. And it's kind of nice to have a, I don't know, like a furry animal. Just Why is my cat the, not the, the mascot? Why is this, why is this dog that was bought well after I owned my cat the mascot <laughs> for this podcast? Well, the mascot... Or, I mean, I, see, okay, I don't think Bomani can be a mascot when he's an admin on the Facebook page. That's a good, well, I, I thought it made all the more sense, honestly, but uh, <laughs> I don't know why he was railroaded. And then this dog's fine. It's a fine dog, but my cat is special. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I, we, there is absolutely room for two mascots here at the Weekly Brew. I don't, I don't see why Bo has to be the exclusive mascot. I, I, think, they, I think they should be co-mascots. That's fine. Bo would be fine with it. He's a very sweet cat. He loves dogs. Okay, so okay. we have two mascots now, but... Uh, you know, kind of segueing back to the NBA, there was a lot of chatter uh, specifically around the Rockets uh, on whether or not they would potentially make a trade for Paul George, uh, you know, Chris Paul, um, two guys with first names. Uh, but the guy that is potentially being shopped would be Patrick Beverly. And, and that's a name that has come up a lot here in the last few weeks. And Hate it. Kevin, I'm not a fan. I, Patrick Beverly is the ultimate glue guy. He's a guy that does the dirty work. He plays defense. You know what I think Hunter would say if he were here? I think he would say that's 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 almost too pat, too facile, right? Like the glue guy. Well, he actually has basketball talents as well that are uh, that and he's are worked his. I mean, he's worked his tail off. You know, from from playing in Russia to mm-hmm. being cut several times to you know being such a key component for the Rockets this season. And he's a guy who can come in and play point guard. You know, while Harden needs to rest a little bit, yeah, and he's not just tying the locker room together. And I do, I do understand that those guys, to an extent, rally behind him. But also, what he's doing, he's playing starting level point guard. You know, in the NBA, I think he's probably a guy that, uh, if you had a Chris Paul, obviously you'd love to have a Patrick Beverly. He's like a sixth man guy. You can come in, and bring some defensive intensity, knock down some corner threes when you need them. Uh, he's a bit of a streaky shooter, but he's he's had some success with that in the past. But but on the other hand, I think he's perfectly serviceable as a starting point guard as well. And when you have James Harden doing the uh, lion's share of the ball handling, then a guy like Patrick Beverly just fits him so well. It's like a glove almost. The, the, the defensive playing off the ball, uh, what he brings to the table really complements James. So I, I don't like that he's a trade piece. I wonder who you'd have starting at point guard there, what you'd hope to get in return. I just I don't know the details, but I do not like on the surface of it moving Patrick Beverly. Yeah, so Daryl Morey, we're not fans. We congratulate you on giving that four-year uh, contract extension this week. Deserved. But if, you, but if you're taking advice from the Weekly Brew podcast, we know you're a listener. Maybe not. <laughs> but a guest, if yeah, not a listener. You're a former guest, so please, please do not trade Patrick Beverly. And if you do, make sure the player in return is LeBron James. I, I think if we can agree on that, do the salaries work if you trade Patrick Beverly straight up for LeBron? And who says no? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I listen to a lot of NBA podcasts. That's like their favorite game to play. <laughs> but okay, so 
I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you both. Um, <clears throat> it looks like the Rockets are going to be players during free agency here in the off season. Who do they go after? Well, is Paul George the guy for potentially a one year rental? I feel like what we don't have the assets. There's there's four or five teams. It would, I have, can to, think it would of. have to be a two or three team deal. It would be, but I'm, I'm saying there's a, there's four or five teams I can uh, that you put to their one to one. They could do so much better than anything we can come up with. I believe, given the assets that we have, so I just don't see that it's realistic. What I think is happening is that Morey is getting involved in a bidding war because George has some value and utility as a rental. Um, it's considerably less than what he would have to the Lakers long-term where he said he wants to be. But he has this period of time where he can get rented out. And so you worry about if he goes to a Boston, maybe. Does he get seduced by the culture there, by the winning? You know, do They then become a championship-caliber type team. Certainly you expect him to, to be in contention for the, the Eastern Conference title and to be in the Eastern Conference Finals if Paul George goes there. So you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to say what exactly he's going to. I don't think there's any realistic chance Paul George ends up here in Houston, but I don't hate the fact that he's driving the price up for him in the meantime and kind of messing with L.A. in the process. So... Who is a realistic guy? I mean, we, we saw Kristaps Porzingis' name get thrown around. God, um, if we could get Kristaps, man. I, I mean, mean, is he a guy that, you know, Maury, Maury always seems to shock us with some sort of acquisition. Mm-hmm. Is he a guy that, you know, maybe the Rockets right now aren't the favorites to land him, but is he, you know, if Phil Jackson is kind of struggling as there's just no way. I mean, do we no see way. that as a possibility? There's no precedent. And Phil Jackson has made the most boneheaded moves I've ever seen from an executive in any field, really. I mean, I've never seen scorched earth like this before. It almost seems intentional and spiteful. I mean, maybe maybe there's some New York trauma there that uh, that he's kind of acting out against them or something. But but uh, you know, I mean, obviously that's a that's <laughs> I'm joking, but it is weird how much Phil Jackson has just been a disaster. Even so, I don't think he's stupid enough to let go of Kristaps Porzingis. That's, that's they call him a unicorn. He's right? a future, a singular talent that and has a, a freak, a are, unique. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I would I would actually place Giannis above Kristaps in terms of where I think the ceiling ultimately lies. But those are the two of the most exciting young talents in the league. There's absolutely no way because he doesn't play the triangle because he didn't show up for his meeting. He could uh, he could have sex with Phil Jackson's uh, uh, daughter. Does he have a daughter? I don't know. It doesn't matter. He could do anything he wanted, and he, he there's still no way you would ever trade that guy. So I just I think it's nonsense from Jackson. It's more the playing the media against the players and doing that stuff. There's just absolutely no way he lets go of him. If he comes here, we got a championship, maybe two, uh, in, in, in a number of years, I would say. Gosh, that's exciting just to think about that as a possibility. But uh, it would coincide right when the Warriors are kind of expected to fall apart, tail off, or not be able to maintain the incredible run they're on. Then you'd have a young Kristaps Porzingis. Oh, my gosh. A, a, and then James prime. Harden potentially in his prime or exactly tail end of right. his prime. Oh, my gosh. That just gets me... So excited and fired up. But, but it's uh, not going to happen. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. But we can fantasize about that possibility. Uh, but you, I, th- I think we're going to see a lot more transactions and just rumors circulating uh, during the offseason, uh, you know, especially with Blake Griffin and Chris Paul opting out of their contracts over the weekend. Uh, but uh, one thing that I want to discuss before we get into the interviews with uh, both Larry Durker and Corey Law from the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, Larry Durker, if you like baseball, you're going to enjoy the conversation. He, t- he tells some amazing stories. And then, of course, Corey Law... Uh, Harlem Globetrotter is going to be in town uh, early July, but uh, it is Pride Month. Uh, the Pride Parade took place this Saturday in Houston, and, and I'm curious. Did you guys see this story from former Patriots and Chiefs tackle uh, Ryan O'Callaghan, who uh, I guess formally came out as uh, gay, and he, he expressed how his, his plan in life was to essentially have a beard, and then once he was done playing football kill himself. I mean, that, to me, that's mind-blowing. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm, I was reading the article here, and honestly, um, kind of reading about his upbringing, it sounds like there were a lot of uh, a lot of notions and things that he had thought of at, in terms of being gay that sort of like weighed on him during his professional football career. And I, I think I'm, I'm thankful for his teammates and other people in his life that seem positioned to sort of help him through that. But certainly his his you know testimony kind of coming out here and talking about what it's like playing in the NFL. I mean, he went know. he went through some serious issues with drug abuse and right. uh, as a result of just trying to you know keep that within himself. I mean. It's pretty remarkable to me to just read his story and, uh, you know, just going to, what was it, Scott Pioli in the uh, the front office and just being able to, like, come out to him. And uh, I, I thought it was funny. If you read this article, it's on Outsports. I, I believe Pioli said that when, o- when O'Callaghan came to him uh, and, and was saying that he had something to talk about, Pioli believed that, you know, maybe he had killed somebody. You know, just the way he was making it such a big deal. Um but yeah, it's just fascinating to me to see this kind of storyline. Of course, we saw Michael Sam, uh, you know, come out uh, prior to the NFL draft, went undrafted, hasn't really played much, uh, you know, had had a little stint in the uh, the Canadian Football League, spent some time on practice squads, uh, I believe with the Cowboys, also with the Rams. Uh, but this is like the first story of, of which we actually hear of an NFL player struggle uh, and, and to me, it was just kind of a, a fascinating read. And I think that uh, most of our listeners during, I, I think, Pride Month should should definitely check this out. One of the more interesting things in that story, I thought, was uh, he said he couldn't recall a single time during his six NFL seasons that he hurts when he used a gay slur, which that, that shocked me, actually. It, that is surprising to me as well. Um, but I also think that it's kind of cool to hear that. Yeah, sure. That, you know, that the NFL has progressed. And in the NFL, we always hear about being a barbaric sport, and I think it is barbaric. We see all the concussions, head trauma, that sort of thing. But and it was I just... make assumptions about the locker room that I think if that if that what he says is true, and I believe him, then probably some of the assumptions I have about what goes on inside a locker room when the media is not there are, are, are probably wrong. Right, and I I think it's probably. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that a locker room would be full of, you know, anti-gay slurs, but it is certainly kind of an intense place. I mean, um, I, I don't I don't think that, that, that anybody's arguing that it's not. But um, I actually, yeah, it's a little heartening that that, you know, he wasn't necessarily the, the subject of any inadvertent slurs, because it sounds like in reading in his background growing up, you know, he did hear a lot of that. And that did sort of play into, you know, kind of this idea about himself and, and then that he thought he needed to hide in the sport of football. So, um, yeah, but it, it, it's great that the NFL, it doesn't sound like it's really hostile to gay people. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, when the media friend, like when, when, it, when a player comes out, it's such a big deal, you know, and I'm kind of wondering, is it just because there's so few, few players that have come out or is there like something in football that makes it hard for them to come out? That, that's an interesting point. And, and he mentions in the article, and again, it's written by, I guess, Sid Ziegler, and you can check that out on outsports.com. But uh, in, in the article, he mentions that when he said that he was coming out, like there were no stories about it. Like, you know, pe- people in the media were like, okay, your, your point. Like, right. So I, I think I think that's interesting. Uh, it, it seems to me like it was a bigger deal for Michael Sam because he wasn't already in the NFL. Uh, and then, you know, with Ryan O'Callaghan, who was a proven veteran, you know, played with the Patriots, played with the Chiefs, it was kind of like, okay, well, we already know that, like, we respected this guy to begin with, so why does that change? And so I, I, th- I think that's kind of cool to see that, that acceptance. But uh, anyways, make sure to check out that article, and uh, uh, I guess in celebration or honor of uh, Pride Month here in the U.S., but uh, uh, definitely uh, check out Ryan's story. It, it's 
pretty fascinating just to see the struggles that he's gone through and the help that he's gotten uh, from support of NFL and uh, league executives. Uh, but we have, uh, you know, really quickly, we want to make sure that you follow our website, weeklybrewcast.com. Also, our social media platforms at Weekly Brewcast. Just search Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And also be sure to use the hashtag GetKevinVerified. And Kevin, <laughs> uh, did, did you get verified this week? It's not me that I want. I just want to clear the, the air here. It's not me personally at K Michael Cook, which you should follow. I'm at 999 followers. I've gained five since the last time we recorded, I think. But um, it's not me I want verified. It's the Cypher Sports account. It's the account that the Chronicle owns that I operate that is a journalistic enterprise. There's okay, no so reason. I'm going to stop you. I think you're full of it. I think that if you had a choice... <clears throat> on whether you want Cypher Sports with that blue check or Kevin Michael Cook. Oh, absolutely, check. of course, because there's no reason that Ed K. Michael Cook should be verified. I get that. I'm not insulted by that. But, but if, you had, if you had to choose which one gets a blue check. Well, of course it can. I can K. Michael Cook, my okay. own personal we, Twitter. We, I'm going to have the blue check. We just, we just want that like, out in the open. <laughs> Obviously. But I, I'm not even asking for that. I never even applied for it. But I apply uh, monthly for us at Cypher Sports, <laughs> and they routinely turn me down. And I've also tagged them many times, saying, like, hey, Twitter, what the hell's the deal with this? And they've never gotten back to me. Well, that's probably why their uh, share price is tanking. It's because people <laughs> like you are uh, not verified with the Yeah, be. screw you, Twitter. And some people who aren't verified have no business being verified. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is what it is. They should let you buy the blue check mark. I think that that would What? You're such it. a Republican No, idiot. no, they absolutely... Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I, I'm trying... Listen, I used to own some Twitter at one point, so I'm thinking of in the, what's in the best interest of the stockholders and the public at large who maybe has some... I'll reiterate. Okay, okay. so Twitter. would you buy a blue check mark? Absolutely not. Would Be- you? No, because it's not worth anything at that point. If you can buy it, then it's not valuable. Well, it, I think it depends on, on on your price point, but if you could buy a blue check mark, <laughs> you were such if you, a if you could buy Ryan a blue, would love no, you. no no. I think I think you I think you would I think he would be okay. You you said Paul Ryan would love him. I think I think he's totally. I fine. think I, I actually am not that. Like, that's not an insult to me. I, I like Paul Ryan. He's I, like keep it he's, coming. Keep it he's, coming. Keep it he's coming. not my favorite speaker of the house ever, but he's not a bad dude. So let's go through your top I, five favorite speakers. Listen. Of the house. listen well, John Boehner and Paul Ryan are are not up there. I have to say, Newt, Newt Gingrich would have to be my favorite. I, I could have called that vintage '90s Newt Gingrich. Absolutely, fair enough. So instead of boring you with uh, Jeremy's top five speakers of the house, <laughs> we're going to get into some uh, great interviews. And again, we have Larry Durker, Astros icon, Houston legend, uh, joining us on the podcast here in just a few moments, and also Corey in Law. studio. Let's yeah, not in like, studio. Let's not downplay clear. that. Yeah. No, he's in studio. It was just absolutely great to talk with him, and we hope you enjoy the interview. Then after that, we've got a few minutes with uh, Corey Law from the Harlem Globetrotters, and he'll be here in uh, early July. Uh, but without further ado, it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. If you've been an Astros baseball fan for uh, any part from the 1960s all the way to current day, there's kind of uh, one voice and one person who uh, has spanned across multiple decades uh, from his time playing with the Astros to coaching the Astros to being behind the microphone. And uh, we're honored to have Larry Durker in studio today. And uh, Coach, it's it's just an honor to have you here in the studio today. We appreciate you stopping by. Well, it's nice to be with you, Austin. You know, the, that introduction might suggest that I'm getting a little older, and I suppose I am. <laughs> so, when I look back, uh, just driving over, I thought about, you know, if I went back 50 years, it would have been my third year. But if I went back 50 years from then, 
We would have been in the dead ball era. <laughs> the Black Sox scandal wouldn't even have occurred yet. So, yeah, I'm getting on there. So, I mean, to me, I think that's that's just fascinating. I mean, you know, we a lot of people now, I mean, they just they just they think of the Astros and they think of Minute Maid Park. They think about the New Jersey's. They think about Springer, Correa. But there was a completely different era, you know, back in the 1960s. I mean, you came up with the Colt 45s in, in 1964. It was your 18th birthday making your major league debut. And now you, know, you have a lot of 18-year-olds that are in high school, just, you know, preparing to pitch in a, in a high school playoff game. And here you are striking out Willie Mays <laughs> when you're 18 years old. To me, I mean, what was that process like from you getting drafted, coming from California and just coming to a new state, a new environment and being at the major league level? It was really exciting for me um, because I, I wanted to play professional ball, and yet uh, I, I was on an academic track in high school, and I had scholarship offers to UCLA and Stanford for baseball, and I didn't really uh, have any problem with going on to college and playing baseball. That sounded pretty interesting and exciting too, but. The, the idea of getting on a plane flying across the country and meeting all new people uh, and playing for money mm. was was even more alluring to me. Uh, but my dad said, well, you know, you're a minor, and so I'm going to have to sign any contract you sign. Um, and I'm not going to sign unless they offer you more than $30,000. Well, I knew they might because it was the year before they started the um, amateur draft and the reason they started it the next year was because the bonuses were getting out of hand and the owners were afraid they were spending too much money on unproven high school kids. And so the 30000 wasn't an outrageous bonus at that time. Uh, the major league players thought it was because <laughs> they weren't making that much. Right. <laughs> but... <laughs> Anyway, when the, I got the first offer from the Cubs and it was $30,000, I was pretty happy. And then uh, the Colt 45s called and offered thirty five, And I I had told the guy from the Cubs, who was a really nice guy, the scout, he said, I, I think they're going to offer you more and I want to get authorized to offer you more, but this is all I can do now. Uh, don't sign with them until tomorrow because I may have more to offer you. And so I told the Colt 45s, uh, well, that's nice, but I can't sign because I promised Mr. Hanley that I wouldn't sign until tomorrow. And that was the best negotiating I did throughout <laughs> my entire career. Uh, they called up a half an hour later, and it was 40. Then they called up a half an hour later, it was 45. <laughs> they wanted me to sign that night. Mm -hmm. uh, it ended up 55. Wow. Plus, uh, wow. They offered me a Mustang, which it was the first year of the Ford Mustang. Wow. Or... Uh, a scholarship that would be worth $1,000 a semester if I wanted to go to college. And so knowing how my dad felt uh, <laughs> and knowing that with that money I could buy any car I wanted, mm -hmm. I said, well, I think I'll take the scholarship because, you know, that's worth more than a Mustang. Right. Back then a Mustang would have been about maybe $3,500 or 4000 or something like that. Mm. So... Uh, as it turned out, I, I bought a bigger hot rod. And, uh, <laughs> I raced around the streets of Houston as an 18-year-old kid, burning rubber and, and, and carrying up my 
my four-speed gear shift, and if I had taken the Mustang, I probably would have torn it up too. <laughs> so it was probably a good decision. I got an education during the off-seasons, and uh, if I had taken the Mustang, I, you know, it would have never been a collector's car anyway, the way I would have treated it. <laughs> So how did things work in the in the pre amateur draft era? Did, I mean, just pl- uh, players uh, found their way to teams, or teams scouted and they just kind of catch as catch can. What was the? That's what it was. Really, it was just like um, sounds like the Wild West. In fact, it was even more um, unruly and, and less uh, controlled than a free agent would be now. If you were a major league player and you became a free agent, there are certain stipulations. If you're a minor league player and you play six years, uh, after that you can declare yourself a free agent and sign with any organization, but there are some stipulations. Uh, As far as I know, in 1964, there were no stipulations. Any team could sign anybody. There were a lot of stories about teams going behind each other's back and, <laughs> and you know, cash under the table and just all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. uh, with the more prized prospects. <laughs> and uh, fortunately for me at that time, I was one of those. And so uh, even though there were a few guys in 64 that got more than I did, I don't think any of them made it up and pitched in the major leagues any sooner. And that was part of the Colt 45's pitch. You know, they said if you went – with an established major league team, it'll take you a few years to get through the, their farm team and their minor league system, A ball, double A, triple A. But, but here with the Colt 45s, you know, we have a mostly older team and we're down in the standings. Uh, you know, we've got Rusty Staub up already and he's only 20 years old. And so if you sign with us, you could make your way up to the major leagues quickly. So is that one of the, so money aside, was that one of the deciding factors for you from deciding for the Colt 45s rather than the Cubs, who were more of an established team, had kind of, you know, not had the playoff success? Was it, was it kind of you wanted to be part of that new franchise and to be able to get that opportunity, or did, did you weigh any other factors? Uh, you know, the, the money was probably the main thing, <laughs> um, but I had to immediately write a check for almost half of that to, for taxes. Right. And... Uh, that, that was probably the main thing. And probably another thing that influenced me was that the general manager of the Colt 45s, who was Paul Richards at that time, uh, flew out to Los Angeles, and he got a couple of other players who were hitting prospects in the L.A. area, and they brought them out to my high school, and I pitched to him, And so he watched me pitch to some of the other top high school hitters. And so after that, you know, since he was a former major leaguer, and the general manager of the team, it showed a little more commitment mm-hmm. than what the Cubs had made. <laughs> and that may have had something to do with it, too. I don't know that I even know. Well, how did the Colt 45s become the Astros? Because I know that the two are linked. Obviously, one is the this other. This is a really you. cool story, Kevin. At the time that the Colt 45s became the Astros, the Colt 45 handgun company or firearm company right was suing the Colt 45s for using their name. <laughs> That's awesome. Can you imagine what a company <laughs> right. would pay right now to have their I name on the front of a major league right. jersey? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. I'm surprised they didn't take that opportunity back even back then. Yeah. Was the, was the league just a, a different place in terms of perception and, and credibility and respectability at that point? I'm not sure. But <laughs> what I am sure of is that back then uh, the owner – there were two owners of the team, uh, Roy Hoffines, who had, was the youngest mayor in the history of Houston, right. and he was a judge, 
and he was a really dynamic speaker. And there was a guy named R.E. Bob Smith, mm-hmm. who was a, a real estate and owner and oil man, and he was by far wealthier than Judge Hoffines. Uh, and after a few years, they didn't get along that well, and so uh, Bob Smith said, I'll tell you what, Roy, uh, I'll pay you whatever amount of money it is, I still don't know, um, on such and such a date, and you can just take that money and run, or mm-hmm. if you can come up with that much money, I'll take it, and you can own the team. <laughs> so the judge was a showman, uh, you know, he was a mesmerizing speecher, right. speaker, and, and he raised that money. So he paid Ari Bob Smith to go away. That's fascinating. And it was, the Astrodome was his dream. Mm-hmm. It was his handprint all over it. It never would have happened without Judge Roy Hoffines. Right. Uh, so his idea was that when the team moved from the outdoor stadium, the old Colt, Colt 45 stadium, right. uh, to, into the modern Astrodome, that it would be a transformation and that we would come up to speed with the, you know, mm-hmm. the modern age. Well, with NASA right down the street right. and a dome, uh, it was sort of an obvious choice, I guess you would say. And so then the lawsuit went away too. Uh, what they didn't uh, anticipate was that the grass they tried to grow right. inside the Astrodome uh, would die. And that's an interesting story, too, because mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the roof was made out of plexiglass panels. And, of course, there was a grid work to hold them in place, but uh, a lot of light got through during day games. So they planted a kind of grass that was supposed to be able to grow in low light, but it just didn't grow well enough, probably under any circumstances. But what they found out... Uh, in short order was uh, during a day game, if the ball was hit up into the air, the fielders couldn't track it. Mm-hmm. And so the balls were bouncing around all over the place, and, and it was, wasn't baseball. You had major league <laughs> players that couldn't catch pop-ups. And so they, to, do, to, to fix that problem, they painted the panels that were behind home plate so that when the ball left the bat and went up into the air, there would be a darker background. Hmm. Once the fielders could track it off the bat, they could catch it even after it left that background and maybe went into another one. So that solved the problem, but it made it just that much darker in there. Mm-hmm. So by mid season of, you know, that grass was just coming out in clumps. And, and <laughs> by the next year we were playing on AstroTurf. And uh, then within about five years, uh, at least six or seven different teams built new stadiums that were perfectly round like the Astrodome that had box seats that could be moved around on rails like the Astrodome and had AstroTurf on the field so that you didn't have to take care of the dirt and the grass and thought, what a wonderful world this is. <laughs> we could play football and baseball. And then with the Camden Yards, the, the, the coming of the new thinking was, you know, if you build a round stadium, you can't get the fans close enough to the field for baseball or football. Uh, a football stadium needs to be rectangular, and a baseball stadium needs to be set uh, on a forty uh, on a ninety degree angle, so that the stands can come up close to the field. And all the old stadiums had irregular outfield walls, as well, which gave them character and style. 
And so after Camden Yards, boom, 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 just like after the Astrodome, right. all these other cities started copying the retro look. So kind of kind of on that note, I actually was able to make my first trip to Wrigley Field uh, just two weeks ago, and I-, I loved being able to be there and just see what a vintage ballpark looked like. And I remember growing up, going to the Astros games at the Astrodome in you know, the, the early 90s, late 90s, but you were kind of in a unique position in the sense that you played and coached in the Astrodome, and then you were the first manager when it was Enron Field back in, in, in 2000. What was that transition like for you going from, you know, almost a cookie cutter stadium to a unique stadium downtown that also helped revitalize East downtown in, in general? I, I was, uh, I said, um, when actually when I was named manager, there were some people in the media said that the reason that uh, Drayton McLean did this was because uh, Larry has been popular as a broadcaster, and uh, he just wants to get that bond passed for the stadium issue, and he wants Larry to help him. Uh, he's not really a real manager. He's just a broadcaster. And so um, I didn't really care what they said because I wanted to manage the team anyway. Right. And one of the things I did say, even though we had three years to go still in the Dome, was I hope I can last long enough to actually manage in that stadium. So when it did happen, I was happy because in my 18 years as a broadcaster, I had studied a lot of baseball history going way back to the stadiums before the old stadiums that I played in. And I, I came over mind that the, the Astrodome was not an ideal stadium. I didn't really like the St. Louis or Cincinnati or Pittsburgh or Atlanta. They were all the same. Every, every park, you know, if you didn't... If there was no local advertising, you could almost open your eyes and say, what city are we in? Right. And so I thought it was really better if you had a unique ballpark where the minute you walked into the stadium, you could say, hey, I must be in Denver. Mm-hmm. Or, look, this is a Milwaukee. Um, and now we have that, except in a way we don't have it. Because you went to Wrigley, and what they've done is they put up a diamond board. Right. And they put up another electronic scoreboard. They put up a ribbon advertising. And so with every one of these retro stadiums that sort of had that old-time nostalgic feeling, they have covered them up with a lot of lights and noise. Because, you know what? That's what young people like. Because they want to make money. <laughs> and they wanted money, yeah. Right. Fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I guess you had just mentioned, you know, spending the time as a broadcaster what was that like for you, you know, to make that transition from the booth to being down on the field and managing games and then, you know, having immediate success, three straight playoff runs? I mean, well, and it, was, sounds, it sounds like there were doubters, too. Right. And, and, and was it kind of fun to, to shut them up, I guess? Managing? Yes. Well, yeah. Going to the booth was um, probably the, the best thing that happened to me because, um, Really, honestly, if if I if I had to evaluate myself, which is not that easy, um, <laughs> you know, I also wrote columns for the Chronicle, and mm-hmm. I also wrote a couple of books. A couple of books, yeah. I would say that what I had the most talent for was broadcasting, right. and that was partly personality, partly voice, and partly uh, study and knowledge, and partly analytical. Mm-hmm. I'd watched the game for a lot of years, and I I could sort of play the the manager in the booth, you know, here is, here's the, 
situation. There's men on first and second. You, know, you could bunt here, but if you bunt, they could walk the next guy. The next guy you really want to hit with men on base, but if you don't bunt, you might hit into a double play. So are you going to bunt or you're not going to bunt? Mm. If it were me, I wouldn't bunt. And then I'd try to get all that in before they threw the next pitch. <laughs> so the, the person at home could manage along with the manager. Right. And so all of those things, uh, for me, uh, made it so natural to do the broadcast once I got the hang of it. Like anything that you try to do in life, there, there was a learning curve. And I was awkward at first. But um, I heard Jim Deshaies the other day on one of the radio stations saying that he felt the same way, awkward at first. But by the time he left here... You know, he was just delightful to listen to. He was, as far as I was concerned, the best. Right. And, of course, now he's with the Cubs, but uh, he said the same thing. I felt really awkward at first, and I was afraid to speak up, and I was afraid to say very much. Um, so it takes a little while. You know, but once it did, it was so much fun. Uh, and I can't say that managing was that much fun. Really? Uh, it, no, it was satisfying because I knew, I, I knew how to manage. Uh, it wasn't that I was afraid that I wouldn't know how to manage the game, the strategy, but the culture was different. And, and managing the the clubhouse, managing the, the players and the personnel and, and trying to get the right atmosphere was really challenging. And then the game, managing the game was tough too because a lot of games are close and the, and the other managers are smart too and they they don't just do dumb things to let you win. So it was really challenging. I like that part. For me, once the game started until it ended, uh, I would have taken managing over any of it. But it, the whole job, you know, from the time you get there. And, to dealing with the press. And, yeah, yeah. And, and the press. And, <laughs> right. you know, if you go on a losing streak, the fans and the media and if you, and then the general manager and the owner, you know, you can get to feeling sometimes like you're, you're caught in a vice and everybody is squeezing from every direction. Interesting, but, but you were able to coach, you know, some some. I guess t- two of the the biggest names in in recent Astros history, Biggio and Bagwell. Obviously, Bagwell's being inducted to the Hall of Fame uh, in, in Cooperstown uh, later this summer. But what was it like to coach them? I mean, were they the type of uh, you know players that obviously you want to build a franchise around, but players that other people wanted to play with? Did they make your job easier as a as a manager? Yes and no. Um, <laughs> um, they made it a lot easier in uh, the leadership they provided by example. Uh, both of those guys were warriors. Uh, there was hardly any injury that could keep them off the field. If I, I got to the point where if I wanted to give them a day off, because everybody needs a day off. It's a, it's a long, grueling schedule. But I found if I told them the day before, they would just come in and lobby and lobby that they wanted to play. I could tell they were tired. I knew they were injured. They were going into the training room, getting taped up, and then getting their knees taped and their elbows taped. They were, I know they needed a day off, but they didn't want a day off. And so I got to the point near the end where I didn't even tell them the day before. I just wouldn't put them in the lineup the next day. And then they'd really get furious, and they'd come back into my office and start screaming again. So it was sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, but the good part about that was everybody else in the locker room saw that. And they said, well, I guess if you're going to play for the Astros, this is how much is expected. They expect you to give your body and your soul and everything you got. And so the upside of that was I'd have guys coming up to me around the batting cage from other teams. And they'd say, 
you know, I'm going to be a free agent. I hope you guys will consider me. I like the way you guys play. Huh. And so, you know, the players wanted to be on a team like that. Was was Moises Alou one of the guys that came up to you and, and, and made that comment? No. He'd take a day off. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he was like Bagwell. He was stoic. Biggio was a chirper. He talked a lot. Um, and so they were different personalities completely. But Moises was... Uh, just steady as you go. He didn't um, get angry. You know, that's one thing that I think is really remarkable. We never had a fight on the field the whole time that I managed. For five straight years, we never had a fight on the field. Wow. <laughs> These guys would get hit by pitches. You know, two guys would hit a home run, and they'd hit the next guy. And then if it was Alou or Biggio or Bagwell, they'd just trot down to first base. They wouldn't even look at the pitcher. That's totally different than what we see from the current Astros. Uh, you know, if, if there's, especially when they play the Rangers now. I mean, there, there's that huge, intense rivalry. Well, scumbags. that's what it, that's what it is and was at least on most teams. But you know, the the league has something to do with it too because uh, the umpires have been becoming more and more um, uh, proactive in in terms of trying to prevent inside pitching and retaliation. The fines have probably gotten bigger, so the league doesn't want um, any fights. And, you know, I, I actually didn't like fights when I was playing. I didn't want to go out there and have somebody punch me <laughs> and have to fight because usually I wasn't the one involved and I wasn't mad. <laughs> and so I didn't really want to fight what I was managing either. To go out on the field in the same way, but when I was broadcasting, I found the fights very entertaining. Sure. <laughs> so now there isn't any, and, that, and now they have the replay that you don't even have the umpire, the manager going out and arguing with the umpire, mm -hmm. and that was also entertaining. Mm -hmm. So I, remember. I, I guess it's like hockey; it's just you know modern times and everything. They're trying to have everybody be more gentle and. Uh, <laughs> loving, I don't know. I, that almost seems counterintuitive to me because, like hockey, you know, has a reputation for being kind of a violent sport, and they encourage that. And yeah. I think within the rules that's allowed for us, I'm not a huge hockey. Not fan, as much anymore. Not really. No. There's a movement yeah. away from that, but it is entertaining. I wonder if they're shooting themselves in the foot by by being so strict and so uh, straight laced about it. Well, I feel um, honestly, and I have nothing to support this, but I feel like if they had no instant replay, that. Uh, the standings at the end of the year would not be affected. That if you if you could picture one way or the other way and, and keep track of it, that maybe one year out of ten uh, a team would make the playoffs that wouldn't have otherwise made it, and a team would not make it that should have made it. I think that's the reason we play 162 games. I think those calls would all even out uh, when they do replay them. They're usually so close you you couldn't call it as a fan the first time around. You have to put it in super slow motion. The umpires do a pretty good job. I just leave it alone. Hmm. What you lose is is the manager running out and arguing. And some of those managers could be pretty entertaining. Bobby Cox. Some of those arguments <laughs> took a long time. So the amount of time wasted 
to me, would, would also even out. You'd waste some time with arguments, but what would you rather have a, an arg, a manager arguing with an umpire or three umpires standing in front of the railing of the dugout with headsets on? I'd rather see Bobby Cox running out of the dugout, kick yeah, dirt over home plate, throw his hat. Exactly. Earl Weaver, and, you know, lots of them. Right. It's, it's part of the spectacle of baseball, which, you know. And, and it's been, and, I think they, you're right, it's yeah. been replaced. It's the, it's the only, baseball was the only sport that had it. Right. And we right. just took it away. Which, you know, you, you're speaking of, you, you had uh, made a reference to culture, the culture in baseball here a little while ago. And I wanted to kind of ask you from your perspective as both a player and a manager, how has the culture in baseball from a player's perspective changed since you played to when you managed? Because I feel like it's kind of a, you know, it's obviously a different game now, but. Uh, the, the money, I think, has made a difference as, as it would with you or I or anyone else. You sure. know, if you, if you yeah. get uh, a lot of money, your, your lifestyle changes a little bit. You might drive a different kind of car. You you might live in a different neighborhood. Uh, so with, with the players starting to, to make, you know, rock star money and movie star money, um, they begin to feel their importance a little bit more. <laughs> and one thing I learned in the first week I was managing was that it was really beneath their dignity to go out and take infield practice. Hmm. It was like hmm. punishment. And when I was playing, we did that every day. And nobody seemed to complain about it. Sometimes a guy would say, I got a sore knee. I don't want to take infield today, but I'll play. They'd say, okay. Um, but, right. you know, there's a sense of entitlement um, that wasn't there. When, when I was playing, we had to walk out through the fans that wanted autographs. Now they park them in a garage underneath where they don't have to be exposed to the fans. Right. Now they don't go up and down and sign autographs like we used to do during batting practice. Um, there's a separation between the players and the fans that, mm. that wasn't there when I was playing. And yet uh, there's also uh, so much more technology. Uh, so that a player might be spending time looking at video in the clubhouse. He might take some extra batting practice in the clubhouse. He might uh, be doing any number of things to help himself prepare for the game that weren't even available to us. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there's a lunch room, you know, where you got all these fabulous, nutritious foods that you can have. We didn't have anything like that. A weight room that's got everything. We didn't have that. Um, and yet, uh, most of the players would come in about 2 o'clock in the afternoon with a bag from Burger King or McDonald's. <laughs> so, you know, some things don't change. The humor hasn't changed. You know, a lot of the uh, guys getting on each other and, and, you know, what you can see if you watch the Astros uh, of them liking each other and, and, and interacting in ways that you could tell that they've, they've got some stuff going on and all that. All that stuff is kind of the same. But I think the, uh, the, the main cultural difference is probably because of the technology and because of the money. That's interesting. Uh, it, but that, does that also add, you know, the technology, does that add to it from an experience standpoint from a fan? I mean, right now, we, we were speaking before, went on the microphone, of just, you know, the advancement of, you know, sabermetrics and just the data available to casual fans now. I mean, does that, does that make the game, uh, you know, almost a better experience to watch? Or do you just miss it where it was just, you know, just keeping score, you know, the old-fashioned way? <laughs> Well, again, you're you're asking somebody that has a biased opinion because um, I think the game was better to watch when the commercials were 60 seconds right. instead of two and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt it was better to watch when the players played at a, 
a better pace. Um, right now, when I watch a game, I usually watch at home, and I'm, I usually read a book while I'm watching mm -hmm. because there's so much dead time. Um, when I was playing, if you'd look up in the stands, a lot of people would be keeping score. Right. If you look up now, a lot of people are looking at their cell phones. Right. So you almost have to entertain yourself while you're being entertained, which is why I think they have all these scoreboards and everything else is to try to keep, uh, keep the pace up that the game lacks with, with all the, the commercials and, and, the, and the pace that the players play at. So uh, it doesn't bother me, really. It's just that I have to have something else to do. That is a that is a national story in terms of what people are talking about regarding baseball the the length of games and the pace of games. You think it's I don't watch a ton of baseball. When I do, it always seems to drag on to me relative to other sports. Is that I mean? Do you see it as a big problem in terms of the sport's popularity? I would. I mean, cause that's interesting to me because I wouldn't even have thought that. I think a lot of it depends on um, whether you you have a baseball background. Um, if you played as a kid and uh, you really know the game and you right. followed at a major league team or even a minor league team uh, and it became your sport and you got interested in the strategy, um, I think you can stick with it mm -hmm. at a slower pace. Uh, but uh, I, I think that's the key is to keep the, the youth leagues flourishing and to keep the kids that have played. Because once they've played, they're going to want to take their kid to the game. Mm -hmm. Whether they take their kid to the game and look at cell phones, there's still going to be peanuts and popcorn and <laughs> hot dogs, and there's still going to be the, the ball game experience. And the memory, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, I don't know. I, I wish the players would play at a faster pace. I know we can't do anything about the commercial side of it. Um, but to, just to give you an example, when I, I was doing some historical segments when I was doing radio, and one of the famous uh, things in history was um, a pitcher, um, I can't remember his name right now, threw a, a spitball. He was a relief pitcher. Uh, he was with the Dodgers, and it was the sixth or seventh game of the World Series, and, and they'd been playing each other practically every year, and the Yankees always won. And this was the game that would have given the Dodgers the win. I think Tommy Heinrich was the hitter. The... The announcer says something like, and here's the uh, pitch to Heinrich. Oh, he gets by Owen, and Heinrich running to first, and he is safe. And now here's Duke Snyder stepping into the box. Uh, Snyder is uh, batting, you know, 342 this series, and, and here's the pitch. It was like the ball right. got by the catcher. The guy ran down to first base, and almost right after he got on first base, Snyder stepped into the box, and he was ready to hit. <laughs> So I listened to that broadcast, and I thought, wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the game even slowed down a lot from then, which was like early 50s, until I played, which was late 60s, early 70s. So it was, it was always slowing down. In the, in the dead ball days when they, they didn't hit any home runs, most of the games were under two minutes, a game under two hours, most of the games. And they've been steadily getting longer over time. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I mean, I think the average baseball game now is just about three hours and 10 minutes. And it, it, I, I don't mind it personally. I, <laughs> I love going to baseball games and seeing, you know, like four hour games. I feel like you're getting more of your money's worth <laughs> if you're in the ballpark for that long. But uh, one of the things that I want to ask you about is, of course, the Astros right now are um, arguably one of the, the, the favorites in the American League uh, this season. You know, they, they have some question marks with the pitching staff and the health of the pitching staff uh, and, and whether or not they're going to make uh, you know a splash during uh, the trade deadline coming up here in July. 
But a lot of people have kind of compared this year's club to your club back in 1998, where you won 102 games, acquired Randy Johnson at the trade deadline. The offense for both teams has been spectacular. When you look back at the 98 club, do you see any similarities with this year's Astros team? Yes, uh, they were both um, great teams. Uh, The difference, primary difference that I see is that uh, we had Tim Bogar and Ricky Gutierrez playing short, and they were both adequate, but but not gold glove type shortstops. And we had anyone from Lance Berkman to Richard Hidalgo playing in center. We had a couple good years out of Carl Everett, but we never really had a frontline center fielder who could hit. Uh, and we never had a catcher who could hit. We had Brad Osmus, and he was great as far as making the pitching staff better. And he got some key hits in some, in some pivotal games as well. But what the Astros have now is they have catchers that can hit. They have a shortstop and second baseman that can hit. And they've got a center fielder that can hit. And when you look at teams that have that, you know, I'm going back to Johnny Benz, Joe Morgan, Dave Concepcion, Cesar Geronimo, or uh, Chet Lemon, and uh, uh, the, the Tigers, and they had uh, Whitaker and Trammell, and uh, oh, I can't remember the, the catcher right now. They had, had, you know, big hitters at all the non-hitting positions. And the Astros have that now. And, and of course, they've got a DH, too. So you've got to face nine hitters when you're facing the Astros. Back when I was playing, very few teams had that. You usually had weak hitters hitting eight in the pitcher or maybe seven, eight in the pitcher. So it was a lot easier. Uh, And now some teams have some weak hitters, but the the hitting overall is better now than it used to be, uh, which makes the pitching seem like it's not as good. so those are some differences. I think we probably uh, were a little bit better out of the rotation once we got Randy Johnson. Uh, with Hampton, Reynolds, and Lima, you know, I'm not sure we we're much better than what they have right now. Um, so I, I think this, this club that they have now might be better. And it really, it's hard to say. Because when you get to the postseason, presumably they do that, you, you have to win a seven-game series. And when I was managing, you had to win a five-game series. And so one game, like Kevin Brown beating Randy Johnson, can change the whole series if it's a five-game series. Mm-hmm. And even with that 98 team, we didn't make it past the first round. So a lot of times a wild-card team makes it to the World Series. When Phil Garner was managing, they got to the World Series as a wild-card. They got by the Braves the year before <laughs> as a wild-card. Then again, they had... Clemens, Pettit, Oswalt, you know, to me, that's what it really comes down to. You want to be able to just shut down the other team, no matter what kind of hitting they have. And the really great pitchers can do that. Uh, how, how, I guess when you look back at that, that 1998 series, I mean, Kevin Brown was just phenomenal in, in that series. I mean, uh, of course, Padres end up going to the World Series. They end up losing the World Series. But how, you know, kind of, frustrating was it to know that you know you had this amazing ball club great pitching staff randy johnson and kevin brown just changed the dynamic of it in a five-game series he He was as overpowering as anyone i've ever seen Uh, he was throwing 97 98 miles an hour his fastball had good life he was sinking he was sailing Uh, he had a slider that was in high 80s it was really sharp wicked 
Uh, he had a split finger pitch that was just diving. He was throwing that high 80s up to 90. And he struck out 15 guys in eight innings. And uh, we had two or three hits, I think. But uh, I don't know. I don't remember anybody hitting the ball hard the whole time he was out there. And then they brought in Trevor Hoffman, who was probably the best relief pitcher in the league, and we scored a run off him. But we lost the game two to one. And the only I got to see two games um, while uh, I was managing that were probably uh, the most overpowering games that I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, and that was a Kerry Woods 20 strikeout game when we only got one hit and it was a ground ball between third and short that most third basemen would have made the play. So he should have had a no hitter with 20 strikeouts. Uh, that one in the Kevin Brown game. Uh, it was just, the, the hitters would drag the ball. It would be like they'd dra be dragging the bat back to the dugout. Just, <laughs> just look like, what am I going to do? I mean, what are you supposed to do? You can't hit that stuff. Is there, is there a pitcher now that you think kind of stands above all? I mean, of course, you've got Clayton Kershaw, who just lights out with the Dodgers. Max Scherzer, who I think he's had 80... 80 starts with the Nationals, and in 11 of those starts, he's gone at least, he's taken a no-hitter into the sixth inning 11 times. I mean, are, are there, and of course here in Houston, you've got Keiko and McCullers who can turn it on and dial it up, but is, is there a dominant pitcher that you see now, you know, compared to what you saw in that 98 season with, you know, Randy Johnson getting 10 wins after the trade deadline, and then Kevin Brown just so dominant in the, in the postseason? Yeah, and of course, uh, Clemens and, and Maddox were around at that time too, uh, Pedro Martinez. Uh, I don't think that there's anybody I can think of uh, right now other than the two guys you mentioned. What does um, perplex me, and, and, and not completely because I know um, the starting pitchers don't finish as many games because that's the manager's uh, strategy as they used to, but uh, the great pitchers of my era pitch four or 5,000 innings. And uh, I looked the other day at, at, at innings pitch leaders, and CC Sabathia and um, maybe Bartolo Colon. They're 40 years old, and they've got 3,000 innings. Wow! And they're 2,000 innings short of, <laughs> of Nolan Ryan and Don Sutton. Mm -hmm. So what I don't understand is why guys like Verlander or Halliday or some of these guys that were so great at overpowering, say eight or nine years ago haven't been able to pitch for 15 or 20 years mm -hmm. like the great pitchers of years gone by. Uh, even, even Pedro Martinez, who was a little bit more modern, modern, didn't rack up that many innings. And so uh, in an age where uh, as soon as a guy has a little pain in his arm or back or neck, they do an MRI and they find something and put him on the disabled list, <laughs> so that they're almost never pitching in pain unless they're hiding it and not telling anybody, but they still don't last as long. And that's what I don't understand. I, I think that's interesting because we saw Roger Clemens be successful into his 40s, and you had just mentioned Jason Verlander. He's a guy that the Astros potentially could be targeting at the trade deadline. He's 34 years old, um, but it seems like he's no longer a frontline ace anymore. You know, His stuff is good at times, but he's not as consistent. But you know, back in your era... We saw guys like Nolan Ryan who were, you know, dominant from the 60s to, you know, the 90s, throwing seven no-hitters in multiple decades, just racking up those strikeouts, racking up those innings. Is it something just uh, – and then we also see so many pitchers now go through Tommy John surgery. But I, I feel like back in the, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was just a – 
I guess what I'm trying to get at is are, are pitchers taking care of their bodies the same way that they did you know, 20, 30 years ago? Or is, or, or, or is, I would say they're taking is, care of their bodies a lot better. Is, is that part of the problem? lifestyles are probably cleaner than some of those guys. Um, not, I'm not speaking of anybody specifically, <laughs> but um, I don't they, we didn't have the, the you know the the kind of physical training that they have now. They know how to keep a pitcher strong without getting him bulked up and muscular, where it's going to affect his flexibility. I think the the, the players are physically in in better condition now than they were back then. Um, I think that uh, there were probably more control and finesse pitchers. Uh, right now, I, I think. There's sort of a radar gun mentality, and it may not be as uh, as strong as it was when the radar guns first came out. But there's still, you know, everybody's talking about velocity. And if you talk to anybody that knows very much about pitching, and they say there's three variables in getting somebody out, and one of them is velocity, but the other two are the location of the pitch and the movement of the pitch, that almost every single person would say location, movement, and third, velocity. But when you see these guys come up from the minor leagues, they're all throwing 98 miles an hour, and half of them don't know where it's going. <laughs> so Don Sutton with five, you know, he didn't pitch as many complete games, say, as Tom Seaver, but he pitched 5,000 innings. <laughs> and he had, he had two years where... He, if you added his walks and hits together, they didn't come up to his innings pitched. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and he didn't throw hard. Juan Marichal didn't throw hard. Uh, and they were right-handed. You know, there's always been the soft-tossing lefty that gets you out with a sinker and pitches like Keiko, low and away, get the ground ball. There's always been Tommy John, as you mentioned. Here's a guy that probably didn't throw any harder than 85 or 86 when he was young, and then he was he got slower after that. He won 280-some games. Jim Cotton didn't throw hard for the last 10, 10 years he pitched. He won 280-some games. Tom Glavin won 300 games. Uh, he didn't throw hard. So, you know, I think for some reason or other, the, the emphasis has been on overpowering the hitters. And maybe the guys that have come up and dominated, you can only overpower so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you can make an exception for, for Roger Clemens and Nolan Ryan, but most of those guys that pitched into their 40s, I mean, like Warren Spahn. I mean, we're going way back now, but he's a left-hander who won 350-some games and didn't even get in the big leagues till he was 26 or 7. <laughs> and he, he, he won, like, maybe 100 games after he was 40. That's insane. But it was control. And so that I feel like in this era, it's it's more. It's not about pitching. It's like you said, trying to overpower the batter. It's and really, they're trying for control too. You know, I mean, they don't want. They know control is important, but I wonder if the pitchers themselves are thinking radar gun. Right. In fact, when I was managing, I can't remember who the pitcher was. We we had a guy that was was always looking down to, to see how hard he was throwing. Was it Billy Wagner? No. <laughs> no, but that was another difference in the 98 team and, and the team now. I still think Billy Wagner is a shade better than what they have now. At least if, if, uh, you know, if they keep going the way they've gone this year, I might have to alter that judgment. But Billy did it for a lot of years. But uh, it was one of the starters. Uh, I don't think it was Lima or Reynolds or Hampton. But So one of the pitchers, 
went down to the, the guy that, that runs the, the thing that, that publishes the, the velocity in the stadium and told him everything that you get on him, put about three or four miles an hour slower. <laughs> <laughs> so he started to put that up on the scoreboard. <laughs> So the next thing you know, the guy's throwing like a maniac because you know, he thinks he's not throwing hard enough. And so I, I wonder now in these days if guys aren't too aware of how hard they're throwing or at least emphasizing how nasty their stuff is and de-emphasizing where it ends up in or out of the strike zone. That's interesting. And uh, Kevin, you actually, uh, you know, wrote an article uh, a, a few, I guess, a week ago. It's been a week. Yeah, yeah just so, a single week. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Larry has a great program going on with with kids in uh, Northwest Houston. Yes, SciFair uh, ISD. You got uh, three middle schools, if I or three elementary schools, excuse me, if I recall correctly, uh, doing the Durkers Champs program through SciHope is the uh, the parent organization there, and uh, and we love them and what they do. They're a terrific organization. But uh, but so uh, yeah, we did we did obviously, and we'll uh, we'll throw up a link on our on our social media stuff to the Durkers Champs program so people can. Oh, that'd on. be great. Yeah, I know you guys are looking for I mean, what what is the situation currently? Because on this show we've not talked about it before, and listeners don't. Ask Really know well, what are you guys doing and what do you need well uh, my son told me yesterday that he heard a statistic so this is not a fact but he heard a statistic <laughs> that uh, American born black players in the major league comprise six percent of the population when, when I was playing it was 30 uh, maybe uh, at one point I heard it was 10 mm-hmm. so whatever it is it has diminished greatly and if you watch a baseball game, it doesn't look a lot different because uh, the scouting in the Caribbean and in South America has has been so intense, and, and the, the, there are so many great talented ball players down there mm-hmm. that there are still lots of people of color. Um, but the ones that are raised in poor areas of the United States are not being exposed to baseball anymore. And baseball has a program called RBI which is um, reviving baseball in the inner city, and that's an active program in Houston. Uh, But where we live, we're out in the suburbs, and there is no program like that out there. And yet there are a lot of kids that are going to uh, schools where most of the kids uh, are at the poverty line or below. Um, There's just... It's like in the Cypher District. It's a huge district. It's over 100,000 kids. It's, Mm -hmm. It's as big as Indianapolis. Yep. And maybe forty percent of the kids uh, couldn't afford to play little league. It would cost you four or five hundred dollars right. to sign up and play little league. They can't afford it. So Durkers Champs is what we've started to try to get those kids uh, on the field and teach them baseball. And when we started, you know, all the you know we we started or we wanted to promote family values, Christian values, uh, character. Mm-hmm teamwork, responsibility, accountability, that we wanted baseball to teach these kids how to act because very few of them are going to go on and get a scholarship or make any money playing baseball. But we wanted them to be a part of what we all experienced as kids playing ball. And so all these parents wanted to sign up because they liked our mission statement. But we ended up getting mostly pretty prosperous people signing up. We had 20 or 25 teams right away. but two of the schools we had to sponsor. We had to give them their equipment. We had to give them their uniforms. We had to provide the coaches. We had to do everything to get the kids from these two elementary schools to participate. 
And the next year, the Cypher Sports Association said, we're going to uh, eliminate the Metro Division because there just aren't that many kids that are just starting out. Most of them are all playing elite and select anyway. Well, that's what most of our kids were playing. You know, they were slaughtering those other two schools. But those, right. other, those other two schools now had nowhere to play. <laughs> so I ran into a guy in Spring Branch who had the same concept, and he had built some fields and got some funding, and, and we've arranged to share fields with him now. And we've got three elementary schools up and running, but we're in the process of trying to work with the school district uh, to get more fields so that we can expand into more schools. You guys are capped right now, right? You're, you're as big as you can get without more fields. We're about as space. big as we can get, but I think we're going to get two or three fields that uh, are also a little bit closer in, certainly not central to the school district, but we're going to get two or three fields, I think, next year, which should allow us to expand, maybe, maybe double, yeah. maybe get six elementary schools. But the really, I, I think you know, one of the coaches uh, – played some minor league ball. In fact, he, he's the principal at this one school. Mm-hmm. And he has a vision of, of going throughout Cypher, and, and his immediate concern is the kids that he's had success with at grade school. Mm-hmm. And he's got the after-school program, and, and he made it a qualification that you have to have your grades up and you can't have any conduct duck problems if you want to be on Durkers Champs. And so then he had this other after-school program for anybody, kids that wanted to play. And, and now all the other kids want to be on Durkers Champs, right. so they don't have to get their grades up and they have to, uh, they have, to have good conduct. So these are the goals that we're trying to reach because mm-hmm. most of these kids aren't going to play in the big leagues. But some of them might. Right. There may be some kids like Jimmy Wynn and Joe Morgan when I played that are going to be 5'9 and 170 pounds, and they're not going to make their college football team or their college basketball team. But these are guys that are Hall of Fame type Major mm-hmm. League Baseball players. They're unbelievable athletes. And, and we might get some of those Endurkers <laughs> champs that find out that baseball's their sport. Right. And they might have never even known it. So you can, you can, if people are curious about that program, there's a Twitter at Durkers Champs. There's at Cy Hope Texas is the Cy Hope uh, parent Twitter. And then Cy-Hope.org. Uh, you can certainly go get more information about that. Yeah, I know you guys need uh, donations, volunteers, all that stuff. So I'd encourage all the listeners to go uh, check that out, read the blurb, and, uh, and to get involved. What has been the most rewarding thing for you personally, just being able to almost give back with Durkers Champs and to be able to – give a new generation a chance to love and appreciate the sport that you, you care so much about. That has. It's, it's actually been personally more rewarding for me um, these last couple of years than it was the, the, the first year because the first year when we had so many teams, and the second year we had a lot of teams too, but after that we didn't have any of the uh, sponsored schools. Uh, when we had so many teams, I couldn't be everywhere at once. But this last year, we've been playing all the games on the same fields. And so I can go over there in the morning and come back in the mid-afternoon, and I can see all of our kids play. And I can see the look in their eyes. <laughs> and I can see them get excited when they get a good hit or make a good play in the field. Right. And that's more satisfying than just having a program named after you, is actually seeing <laughs> yeah. the kids. And so what I'm concerned about, but not concerned enough to – to prevent us from going forward is that if we grow right. into the whole district, I won't be able to watch them all anymore <laughs> because they'll That's be a all good scattered problem. out. That's a good problem to have. But it'll be say. a good problem yeah. to have. Right. And uh, another thing when you first started that question, uh, when you said what was the most satisfying thing, I wanted to uh, 
also clarify one thing. I talked about how much fun it was to broadcast and how challenging it was to manage, but I didn't really talk about uh, how satisfying it was to manage because that's a different thing from happiness or from something being uh, just fun. Uh, broadcasting most of the time was just fun, but managing wasn't always just fun. But winning a championship was really satisfying because I played 13 years and we never even came close. <laughs> I mean, by, by the beginning of September, we were eliminated. We were out of it. So to actually be in the dugout with a uniform on, it was a lot different than being in the broadcast booth in 80 and 81 when we won and in 86 when we won. Uh, being on the team and in the dugout, uh, that was probably the most satisfying thing uh, of the time I spent in my baseball career. So I, I guess kind of on that note, and probably one last question before we let you go. I mean, I, I think it's really cool that you've been so intimately involved with the Astros since the 1960s. Just the organization, the city of Houston, continuing to give back, uh, you know, whether it was as a player, as a broadcaster, manager, ambassador. When you look back, you know, at, at the last 50 plus years and, you know, going through the different moments, the, the all-star appearances, making uh, your major league debut on your birthday, having your, your jersey retired at Minute Maid Park. I mean, what is what is the the one thing that when you look back on your career that you want your legacy to be remembered as? Well, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I'd like to think that, um, that people can make up their own mind about that because it, anything I might say would probably not sound too humble. And I'm really not very humble. <laughs> I, I have a healthy ego, but I don't want to really brag and say this is what I'm all about. You know, I, I guess maybe more than anything, uh, just what you just said, uh, jack of all trades. You know, I wasn't a, a Hall of Fame um, pitcher, but uh, I was good enough to be better than average. And uh, I wasn't a Hall of Fame broadcaster, but uh, I felt that I did a good job. And I think the combination between that and managing got me as far as the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and the number retirement. So athletically, that's probably as far as I go. But, you know, the, the columns and, and the book and the, the historical segments on radio and the, the things that had to do with my education are important to me, too. And so I guess it would be just uh, uh, be known as a, a utility man, I guess. The Marwin Gonzalez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. Well, well, Coach, it's been an absolute honor. Uh, having you stop by the studios and uh, as someone who grew up, uh, you know, listening to you, watching you coach, uh, it's, it's been great having you here in the studio. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great being with you guys. It's, it's, it's always fun to be in front of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome back anytime. So. Yeah. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Want to welcome into the show, uh, Corey Thunderlaw. That Thunder, of course, would be the uh, the nickname because he's a member of the Harlem Globetrotters. Low these past three seasons. Uh, once made a huge, enormous trick shot off of NRG Stadium. Uh, you have a little bit of Houston ties here. You will be in Houston July 8th and 9th, two shows at NRG. One thing I'm curious about, okay, the Harlem Globetrotters, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a well-recognized name. I think everybody I know knows about them. You guys are coming to town soon. Obviously, you'll be in town July 8th through 9th, two shows at NRG on the 8th, and then uh, one at the Berry Center on the 9th. 
and I will be at the one at the Berry Center. Uh, but but uh, the people I've been asking, like, where did you hear about the Harlem Globetrotters? Everyone universally says Scooby Doo. Is that is that how you first w- were introduced to the Harlem Globetrotters yourself? Um, yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a little bit too young to remember the Scooby Doo episodes, but um, my first introduction to the Harlem Globetrotters was um, I would always see their special on ESPN around Christmas time, and um, I would watch it with my mom and. You know, I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. And I remember watching guys like, you know, Big Easy and highlighting those guys. And um, I remember four years ago to today, I, I was drafted. And um, I thought it was like the coolest thing. And my mom was just amazed. And she started telling me all these stories about how the Harlem Globetrotters and Curly Mill and Metal Art came to her school. And I think so. I would definitely tell my mom. I would definitely say I got introduced by the Globetrotters for my mom. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I, it, it is. A, it is an institution. I, is, it, is it still the same way? I, it's been a while since I've kept up with the Globetrotters closely. I'm, I'm very excited about you guys coming to town. But is it still? You still play the Washington Generals and you beat them, uh, you know, uh, tirelessly every time. So the last since I've been on a team, um, we've been playing a team, the World All Stars, the Washington Generals. I guess they got tired of getting beat up on. But what's crazy? You asked that there. There's rumors now. It's not even a rumor anymore. It's fact that we're going to be playing them again next year. They um been on a three year hiatus. And um, they say they got some new talent, and they, they say they're going to come beat us. So we'll see about that, though. I think if I, if I was reading the website correctly, the record is like 17,003 between you guys and the Washington Generals all time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny. Um, the last time they lost, I mean, the last time they beat us, it was in uh, 1971. And, uh I don't. I don't think Curly Neal likes to talk about that to this day. Well, you talk about uh, you talk about the history, and I guess Sweet Lou Dunbar is a name that I, of course, recognized anyway. He was a University of Houston player, and we're here in Houston right. as the show. Right. He's uh, he's he's actually I the director him. of player personnel now, right? That's right. I call him the living legend. Um, Sweet Lou. Um, he played with the organization for about twenty years, and he's been coaching for about another twenty-four years. That's almost. I mean, so that's a a long time to be a part of a, the organization, and um, he's well known throughout the Houston area. He's a great guy and uh, one of my mentors. So. Yeah, he's director. Yeah, yes, sir. And he's given a lot to the Houston community too. I know he's beloved here uh, and has done a lot of good work just in terms of you know building basketball and, and charitable giving and things like that. And I know Houston's proud That's of right. him. But another Houston connection. Last time you guys were here as an organization, you yourself uh, made a shot. I was just watching the YouTube video off of NRG Stadium, and it, first of all, you look terrified. I would be terrified too. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I was. And then, second of all, how many, I got to know, because obviously the way the video is edited, it looks very smooth, like you walked up there and cold hit it immediately. How how many tries did it take to nail that shot? Because it was, I mean, flow click Steph just, Curry. It just, I just did, I just did exactly what you just said. I walked up there real smooth and just hit the shot, man. That's how it was, <laughs> that's how it was done. But no, um, it took, a, it, um, it took a little while to get up there. It took, actually took about five minutes for me to actually get up there, man, the dumb. So I was not trying to be up there all day, and then the rain came. So you know it was time to hit that shot. I hit. It was a great. It was a great, great experience, though. I bet so. I mean, it was it was a beautiful looking shot, and I could see the uh, the ecstatic nature of your face after you hit it there. I'm sure you were glad to get down. Yeah, I barely I barely could see the goal too, and it, it didn't help. I wear glasses, but I don't wear contacts, and I didn't have my glasses on, so the rim just looked like a little orange orange circle. I, I barely could see it. You were playing hurt. You got to you got to include that in the video. That's even more impressive. <laughs> nah, it was cool. I think the video was pretty cool enough, so it was awesome. So, uh, what uh, you know, uh, if people want to come out or are curious about coming out to the show, obviously everyone has heard of the Harlem Globetrotters. That's an advantage you guys have is great name recognition. But if there are people that are on the fence. Or what, what is a typical you know uh, show? You know, is there going to be two at the at NRG or one at Barry? What's a show like? So the, the the show was an amazing show. You know, the people here at Harlem Globetrotters, and there's just such rich history. But they think of everybody. You know. Like, I hear them all the time. You know, I thought you guys were all old men. And I'm like, no, it's a new era. You know, um, 
We got some young athletes. We got some of the best high-flying dunkers in the world. You know, we got some of the – we have the greatest shooters in the world, the best ball handlers in the world. And it's just family fun. And uh, we create memories that's worth repeating. And it's just an amazing amazing environment. You know, no matter if you're age 9 or 90 years old, you can come out and have a good time. Some of the best comedy you'll see as well. And we still have things like some of the older generation, they'll remember Curly Deal with the water bucket. And we do a little bit like that, but we add our own twist to it. So it's a great, it's a great event. As I recall, the referees usually end up uh, uh, kind of with their shirts over their heads or, or their pants pulled down at times, if I'm not mistaken. I'll be honest, man. Like, I, I'm, I've been a member for uh, five years now, and uh, I see something different every night. So I, can't, I couldn't promise you, but I can promise you I have a great time. So you guys play, I mean, you're, you're, you're professional basketball players. You play a very entertaining, uh, family-friendly, comedic style of basketball. But I think that one thing I'm always curious about, and I hope this is not an insulting question or anything, but, but if you guys were to, as a unit, line up against, say, I don't know, Kentucky from last season or, or the most competitive, say, college basketball teams, I mean, you guys are grown men for the oh, most part. So, oh, so, I mean, definitely. Like, I mean, myself, I speak for myself. I can actually speak for all of my you know, 30 other teammates. We've all played basketball at the collegiate level. We had guys that's played with the Globetrotters that's went on to play in the NBA. We had guys who's left the NBA and played with the Globetrotters. So we all, you know, compete at a high level of basketball. And um, so we all feel we can stand up against any team you put us in. We know it. We can compete with the best. We were all recruited for because we played basketball, but not because we could do tricks. So we all were recruited as basketball players and, uh, you know, the tricks and things that, that came along. We took a lot of practice and dedication, which we all know about, to learn those tricks. But uh, we still got game. My, my teammate, my teammate, Big Easy, he, he, I quote him, uh, he has a saying. He always tell him, don't let these tricks fool you because he got game. And uh, we all feel that way. So, I mean, does it, it sounds like you are a very competitive guy. You know, I can tell even from the, the video and just listening to you talk, does it, is it enough to slate that competitive urge? Or do you guys have maybe some, uh, some you know, like three-on-three games that you play amongst yourselves to, to kind of take oh, the edge yeah. off? We're all competitive no matter what it is, whether it's the first one who can finish drinking his water bottle or one-on-one on the basketball court. We just all competitors. And, um, you know, we all get that itch. But, you know, sometimes we, we go, we play, we go home and we play in summer leagues. Like I play in, sometimes I play in the Drew League out in California, that's a lot of NBA players, and we'll get that itch there when we want to compete. But, you know, our games is very competitive as well, you know. We do a lot of tricks and rings, things we call rings with the confetti bucket and things like that. But, you know, it's still 5-on-5 basketball, and we're we're still competing in between in, in the show. I will say certainly that uh, for the listeners of this show, I will be out there myself July 9th at the Barry Center. The first time you guys are ever visiting. I know they're very proud to have you and thrilled that you're coming along. But uh, and, and awesome, yeah. you guys are very active on social media. You yourself, I believe, have a Twitter. The, the Globetrotters have If people are curious about the show, they want to go find out more information, where can they go to do that? Oh, man, you can you can, you can log on to HarlemGlobetrotters.com. You can go. Um, we have an Instagram account at Globies. We have Twitter. Um, there's so much. You can go to our you subscribe to our YouTube page and you'll see everything you want to see on YouTube from clips of the show to all of us hitting world record shots. I have five Guinness World Records. I set five myself. You'll be able to see that. Um, as an organization, I believe we set nine in like one year. So you'll be able to see so many cool things. Is there is there anything like that coming down the pike when you're coming to Houston? Hey, you're going to see it all. I, I promise you that. You're going to see a lot of cool things from the long shots to the high-flying dunks to some good laughs. Well, hey, Thunderlaw, I appreciate your time so much, man. I can't wait to see you out there. I'll come shake your hand when I uh, after the after the event's over. Awesome. Thank you. I look forward to that. Absolutely. Take care, man. You too. Thank you. Closing time. 
absolutely amazing guest for episode 99 of the podcast and uh you know thanks to larry durker and Corey law for joining us and thank you especially to larry for joining us in studio and uh, guys i'm a huge astros fan i, I grew up listening to him on, on broadcast and seeing him coach in the late 90s early 2000s it, it was pretty awesome to be able to talk baseball with him for like I don't know, like an hour. Yeah, and I'm actually not a huge baseball fan. That's, what? That's, that that's no mystery to the podcast. Um, but fake news. His, no, but but <laughs> but he was an absolutely fascinating you know, guy to talk to about baseball and just all the historical information he gives about where the sport has been. And honestly, he kind of validated some of my issues with the sport and the, and the pacing when he talked about how slow baseball is. And you're like, oh, that's great. I love to be in the stadium for three hours. And I'm just like, no, like like keep it interesting. Like like keep up the pace and. He sort of validated that, which I thought was 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 really cool. So, um, but absolutely fascinating interview, even if you're not into baseball. Kevin, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, I'm not into baseball like you are, uh, Austin, obviously, but but certainly he is just remarkably well versed. I mean, for a guy who's his age, uh, incredible recall of facts, names, dates, things like that. I mean, batting averages. Yes, I know it's crazy. Back, like, the 1950s and 60s. That's uh, like, insane. Like a like a savant like recall of all this crazy stuff. Which I got to go read his books now. Uh, he mentioned uh, he didn't mention the titles of them. I have them kind of around here somewhere. But yeah, he, they both seem pretty interesting as well. Yeah, I, I definitely. I don't know. This could have honestly been a seven-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I would have been totally it all, it, it very <laughs> It came close to being, honestly. But uh, great stuff. Uh, Larry, appreciate you stopping by uh, the studio here this week. And also Corey Law, Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, Kevin, good interview. Yeah, I, I, was, I was fascinated by the, the Globetrotters. I've been excited that they're coming to town. I've always been aware of them since uh, I mentioned in the interview. I, I, Scooby-Doo is kind of how I came to be familiar with them. But uh, this will be the first time I'm ever actually going to see them and doing the live show thing. So they don't play the Washington Generals anymore. I was a little disappointed by that. That. It's the world all stars, and actually, I got into like one of those rabbit holes where I just kept clicking, 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 like wiki clicking. And there's a really complex history. Like the Washington Generals are an actual team founded by an actual person, and like it's a whole weird history. I, hopefully, somebody will write a book about it someday because it's fascinating. But uh, but they are supposedly coming back next year. So if you miss the Washington Generals like I do, they'll be around uh, this time next year. Interesting. We'll definitely keep that on the uh, on the uh, uh, I guess on the podcast. We'll, we'll we'll sure to brief you on the Washington Generals at least, Kevin will. <laughs> But uh, interesting this week, uh, I thought it was kind of funny that you were uh, interviewing Corey, who's obviously a member of the, the Globetrotters. But uh, the Globetrotters announced that they drafted Tim Tebow and Wonder Woman onto their uh, onto their team. And I don't Wonder know. Woman, not even a real person, which I thought was a bold move. It, it was a bold move. But Tim Tebow, I mean, can you even get him now? I mean, he was just actually promoted. Right. Uh, earlier on Sunday to Class A baseball. So we went up from like rookie league to Class A. So Tim Tebow just two stops away from the major leagues. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he's just doing anything and everything. So I, why not draft him, right? It would be the perfect time to get him because he just seems uh, hell-bent on playing every single sport there is. I feel like he's got some sort of like a bingo card or something that he's checking off as he does these, <laughs> and it's like a bucket list or something. That could be interesting. It's actually really funny because I, I was hearing, uh, I was listening to a radio show where they were talking about Tim Tebow and how he gets made fun of during games by the opposing team. In fact, there was some backlash to the, the opposing team here that he was playing here a couple of weeks ago. And he just like, he shrugs it off like it's nothing. Like, oh, I'm just Tim Tebow. So, of course, I'm going to get made fun of. But they were playing the Hallelujah Chorus whenever he like went up to <laughs> bat, which I thought was really funny. And he just lets it roll off his shoulders. But it's his fans that like, you know, become this groundswell of of anger and rage whenever somebody makes fun of them, which that, I just that, thought that was sounds really funny. to me like 
Trump fans, to be honest. Tim Tebow and Trump, they're probably There's not a lot, a lot of similarities lot of from Trump and Tebow, I think. Yeah. Pro- probably a lot of the same voters and fans as yeah. well. <laughs> Possibly, but... The demographics it, it, overlap, I'll say that. Yeah, I, I think we should probably add that he's two big stops away from, from pro baseball, so... Yeah, two yeah. gigantic Two gigantic stops, stops. Yeah. So, but I, I wish him luck. I, I think he's entertaining. I, I have to it give would, it to It would him. be fun to see him like actually get a call up in like September. I don't think yeah. that will happen, but it would just be... I don't know. If, if he deserves it, it, it would be cool just to see that storyline of him you know, not playing for over a decade, deciding that he wanted to work at this and, and to see his dream come true. I, I think it, I'm rooting for him. I, I want to, at the end of this little experiment, um, maybe it'll be obvious, and I think it probably will not be. I'd love to put his career side-by-side side with Michael Jordan's baseball career and see how they stack up at the, uh, at the end of the day. Well, so Jordan obviously was in double A. Right. Um, but his batting average was, I think, like 200 or something like that. But... Uh, with but, a, with but, a spike at the end of right, the upward but, trajectory. But here's the thing. With, with Jordan, I don't think he had to go through, like, rookie league ball. You don't think so? I don't, I don't think he had to do that, like Tebow. Tebow. I think, I, I, he said treat me like everyone else, and the, the documentaries I've seen and the, the articles I've read seem to suggest that he went through the process. Like, But you're right. I remember no mention of rookie league ball, so that could very well be. Are my Jordan playing cards worth anything yet, Austin? You have baseball cards from Jordan? Are you talking baseball or are you talking yeah, about, ba- like... Yeah, baseball. Do they make minor league baseball cards? Yeah, they, they had they, they did have a minor league baseball card with Michael Jordan's, you know, like, like his batting shot. on. So it. what if you had every baseball card that had ever been made? Like just one of them. How large would your baseball card collection be? Uh, it would be massive. Yeah, I'd fill this apartment plus some at least. Wow. Interestingly enough, when I was in Tokyo uh, this year, baseball cards were like all over the place. Really? And, it, and to me, it was just kind of interesting to see the Japanese baseball cards and also see Japanese baseball cards like the American players on it, like Bryce Harper or Carlos Correa. That Did they have a, like a Pikachu on the back of it or something? Uh, yeah, actually. I, uh, it seems right. Yeah, no, you have to catch them all. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, actually, I think it was probably about a year ago, which we had the, uh, the Pikachu conversation when that whole yeah. thing was going all over. But yeah, just actually looking at uh, Michael Jordan's stats, he only played one season of minor league baseball, and that was 1994 at the age of 31. He only played at the double A level, so I think that was kind of a uh, that was a boost. The Barons, that, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, the Birmingham Barons. That was a boost that you know Tebow didn't necessarily get. Tebow has actually had to progress, and so I think that's why it's more impressive that Tebow was actually promoted. Sure. Um, but if you look at uh, Jordan's numbers, he had three home runs, fifty-one RBIs. He struck out one hundred and fourteen times, batting average two oh two. Doesn't seem great. That's not great. <laughs> yeah, but that that that's baseball. For but you. Tebow's setting the world on fire. He got he promoted is. from rookie to A. Yeah, absolutely. Tim Tebow is killing it at the uh, the minor league level. Uh, he is currently, let me pull these stats up. He is not doing much better. He's hitting two twenty two, but <laughs> his strikeout numbers are uh, still ridiculously high. They are at sixty nine, <laughs> which is kind of nice. <laughs> I'm uh, telling you, there's a lot of there's a lot to be compared here. All right, so fair enough. But uh, really quickly, let's get to um, I guess the one serious story that we're going to have on the uh, the podcast this week and. Um, last year, you'll recall that we mentioned Otto Wambier, the uh, University of Virginia student who was on a tour in North Korea in, what was it, 2016. Uh, and he was part of this Young Pioneers tour and was taken for uh, stealing a propaganda poster and uh, was sentenced to like 15 years of hard labor. Ultimately, he was returned to the United States about two weeks ago. Uh, he has been in a coma or was in a coma for over a year and uh, passed away. Uh, last Monday. And so to me, this is kind of interesting storyline with the ongoing crisis with North Korea. Uh, 
and the Economist actually had an interesting article, and they posed this question: Why did North Korea admit that Otto's uh, Otto Wambier had been in a comatose over a year, but lie about its cause? And does does this worsen? Does this potentially worsen relations with? North Korea. I mean, I know no relations exist right now, but we look at what Donald Trump did by bombing Syria, and it was because he saw children's bodies on TV, and it was impacted by that. Does Otto coming back and then losing his life, does that impact Trump so he might do something stupid and maybe launch a preemptive strike on North Korea and then create all chaos over in, in, in that part of the world? You know, I, it's interesting. This is a very sad story um, about Otto Warmbier. I was, I was reading one of the medical reports um, about his condition, and he had actually lost a pretty um, significant portion of his brain tissue, uh, which is part of his comatose state. And what that, what the medical report seemed to indicate is that he was denied oxygen for a period of time, leading to a loss of tissue in his brain. So um, I, I have no doubt that the North Koreans tortured him, and they were probably trying to conceal that fact and blaming it on botulism, whatever they, they said it was. And so um, I, I imagine they do probably fear the wrath of Donald Trump a little bit, and they should, um, because they've been playing this game now with their nuclear weapons program, and it's making everybody in the region uneasy, South Korea, Japan, um, among China. Our, our, our China. Even China. You know, the Chinese have like troops on the border with North Korea. Right. I mean, like, it, it's no joke. And so this little, this little, you know, little obese um, man that walks around in like what looks like uh, a giant romper. Um, you know, he started the male romper. He crimes. did. He really did. Well, him and his grandfather and his dad, just all a bunch of psychotic maniacs. But yeah, so um, if you're out there and you're male wearing a romper, just look at him and realize you don't want to be a part of that. Right. Well, I, 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 all to say, my, my point is to, to your question, I do think that they're concealing what they did to him to make themselves seem, make it seem like, oh, it was just an illness and we took care of him. You know, yeah, I mean, like it's more just, it's, it's com- Yeah, it's right. complete, it's complete bullshit. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what the response is from the United States. Uh, cause there are currently three other Americans that are being held captive in North Korea. Uh, it, it, I don't know. Does North Korea try to pacify the United States and, and, and let these three individuals go? Or do they kind of double down and say, look, we did what we had to do. I don't know. We, we, we work through Swedish diplomats when we do this. So it, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's a process. I think general Mattis, um, has a, a big role to play in this along with Rex Tillerson. So, um, you know, are they going to try to leverage those three people? I think if, if, if the Trump administration and general Mattis and Tillerson, if they want to act in the, the U S is interests over there, they're not going to do it necessarily with those three people in mind. I mean, it's, I think whatever happens is going to be for the good of the region and not necessarily for the sake of those three people. So um, I think that they're kind of screwed being in North Korea. Yeah, it's interesting to see what is going to happen. And, and I, I, I think this is going to be an ongoing storyline for the rest of the summer, heading into the fall. Uh, really fascinating to see what happens just from a, um, a history standpoint. Uh, this, is, this is a leader who is young, immature, uh, has a strong ego. And we've got a president in the United States who is old and mature and has a strong ego. So I think there's a lot of similarities and I'm just interested to see how it all plays out. I, I, I wouldn't go so far as go so far as to compare Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, but they're both that, wild cards. that being said, I, I want to make it a point that the fact that we have talked about North Korea in a negative way on this podcast would probably prohibit each one of us plus our children, three generations on from ever stepping foot in that country. So, I, you know, I don't think I want to go to, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not, I'm yeah. not, I'm not at all hurt. 
Yeah, you know, I, I have this a, is not a loss for I, me. I've been to like forty plus <laughs> countries. I've got you know several more on my list, and I think uh, North Korea is not on there. Yeah, I, I know. I I feel like the South is kind of. I, I would, these I would days. go to Iran before North Korea. Uh, you know, I, I, it's not the the most romantic uh, vacation destination I can think of, but. Um, <laughs> But that's what that's what we're that's what we're saving for Greece, right? Right, exactly. exactly. We are going to Greece in the fall. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. So, just if you heard that, Jeremy and I are just not going to Greece. There's a huge group of us that are actually going to Greece. So it's not just a weekly brew tour. To uh, oh no, to it is just me and Austin, okay. and we have a suite together. All right, shh, don't tell anyone. But <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so it, it's it's been great. Uh, again, having uh, both of you guys here in studio, and of course, thanks to Larry Durker. Uh, for joining us, and also thanks to Corey Law for joining us. Uh, Kevin, really quickly, I want to uh, give you a chance to mention uh, your new podcast that you started up uh, this week covering specifically sports in the sci-fi area. I didn't figure there was any reason to mention it. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're for some reason uh, in the sci area, the, the sci Sports Report is out now on SoundCloud, and uh, we're working on getting it on iTunes. It'll be there soon. There's a Facebook. At sci Report is everything there. So, yeah, if you got some interest in CFISD, that is the place to go. Thomas Bingham from Vibe Magazine, Chase Parrish of Varsity Wires. Obviously, I'm the Chronicle. The three organizations have banded together. It is a massive undertaking, and uh, we're very excited about it. Yeah, so definitely uh, check that out, and then you can also follow our work on social media just search weekly brewcast on facebook twitter instagram and uh youtube and also you can follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com we post each show there each monday morning but uh guys it's been great having you both in studio and again thanks to our guests larry and Corey, especially larry durker for stopping by uh the studios here in houston but and watch uh we watch the astros game the oakland uh on the 28th i'm sure that the broadcast team is going to show Absolutely. Durker in his seats there and i should be hovering kind of right near him too yeah it should be a good opportunity to see what kevin looks like on television <laughs> uh but or go watch any rockets game from like the past five years fair point but uh, it's it's been great having you both on the show and on behalf of my co-host this week kevin cook jeremy paxton my name is austin staden and we'll see you next week and guys remember this week no matter who you are where you go or what you do always always brew responsibly You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 